Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'll be reading verses 17 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Uh, before I read the text, a few thoughts I had that I wanted to share with you. Out of all of the issues that are going on, and there are a lot of them, divisiveness might be the worst and the biggest issue. It's a bigger issue than the rampant immoral behaviors that are being condoned and tolerated. Drunkenness at parties, sexual immoral relationships that are going on and nobody's doing anything about it. But I still think even in spite of all of those things, the factions between different parties is a bigger underlying issue. The lack of unity is also why there's so much confusion surrounding issues dealing with gender. Some people may object to this idea and say that the health crisis going on might suggest a more serious and urgent problem. People are sick. People are dying. What could be worse than that? And I get it. It's a valid observation, but I have looked at this situation again, and I'm convinced that fewer people would have gotten sick, fewer people would have died if there was greater love and more unity. When you read about the disorder and the chaos going on, you realize that the things that we see externally are only symptoms of the internal cancer of disunity. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Are, are you seeing what I'm seeing? If not, then I'm hoping that today's message will help you see that all of the issues I just referenced were going on 2,000 years ago inside of a small church in the city of Corinth and that the biggest of those issues was divisiveness. That was a trick, by the way. Everything I was talking about was summarizing the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the issues of a church 2,000 years ago. If it sounded relevant to today, well, maybe that's because people don't change much. So let's look to our Bibles, to Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, the letter that we normally call 1 Corinthians. And let's continue our short series on the significance of the Lord's Supper. And let's read verses 17 to 34. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. As I mentioned, we're doing a short series, taking a a break from our bigger teaching series in the Gospel according to Matthew, And we're looking at a practice of the Christian church. The practice is called the Lord's Supper. As we see here in our text, it's called the Supper that pertains to the Lord, or in short, the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10 last week, we saw that participation in the cup is participation in the blood of Jesus. Participation in the loaf is participation in the body of Jesus. That word participation is where we get the word communion. It's koinonia. And so that's why sometimes this practice is called communion. It's also been called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, because when Jesus broke bread, he gave thanks. And it's the word in Latin for giving thanks. And as I mentioned earlier, there's also all throughout Luke's writings and the gospel according to Luke and in the book of Acts, this phrase called the breaking of the bread is used. And then lastly, there's one other New Testament usage of this practice, and it's called the agape feast. Agape is the word for love, a deep, rich definition of love, not quick, fleeting, momentary, emotional love. Love is commitment and covenant. And so they had an agape feast, communion with one another in the Lord. They would give thanks for all that God has given them. And they would take a a supper where they'd break bread and they would eat together. It would not just be any supper. It would be the Lord's Supper. That practice, that's the practice We're going to be considering for the next several weeks. And the main reason I want to think about it is because as COVID hit and we started separating into our homes through quarantine, I felt the urgent desire to make sure we understood that this is not normal. Everyone that's online right now, we love you. We want you to be with us. It is not normal for us to meet in this way. 
It is right and it is biblical and is good and it should be the normal way that we meet together and we eat together and that there is intimate fellowship with the body of Christ. Zoom does not do justice. Do I get an amen on the Zoom? There's something that we were made for. Relationships. Human beings actually interacting in person. Seeing each other's faces. Hearing each other's voices. Church is not just content to be delivered through a message on a phone or an iPad. It is us. It is the people of God. It is the citizens of heaven. And therefore, I want to make sure we understand that at the center of the church is this practice, the practice of the Lord's Supper. So one big idea from our text, we're going to cover several different things. We just want to look at one simple idea each week. This week's one simple idea is that the Lord's Supper brings the church together by undermining the divisions of the world. The Lord's Supper is a practice given to us, commanded by Jesus, to bring us together, to unify us. And one of the ways it unifies us is that it undermines the divisiveness of this world. Unity is such an essential aspect of the Lord's Supper that we see in our passage of Scripture that you aren't even practicing the Lord's Supper if your church is divided. You might be eating the bread, you might be drinking the cup, you might even be all together, but you are not taking the Lord's Supper if you are divided and cliquish and have class, society, distinctions, rich and poor, ethnic divides. That's not a Lord's Supper. So let's look through our text, make sure we're understanding what's going on in this first little bit, and then let's apply it, and then let's take the Lord's Supper together. That's the plan. So let's first just work through this text. You notice right away, he says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And this is paralleled to, if you just glance your eyes to chapter 11, verse 2, now I commend you because, and then he talks about a tradition that they're, they're doing rightly. And so in contrast to the tradition that they're doing Rightly, they have a practice that they're doing wrongly. And he says, I'm not going to commend you with these instructions. I'm not going to praise you. You could translate it. And the reason he's not going to praise them and he's going to rebuke them is because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, one just basic observation real quick. This is almost the only passage of scripture that gives us instructions about this central practice of the church, the Lord's Supper, if they didn't have this thing so messed up, we may, maybe wouldn't have heard from Paul that when they come together, they're not doing it for the better, but for the worse. So, so in a strange providential way, we might want to thank the Corinthian church for having such a mess on their hands because it has now allowed us for the last 2,000 years of church history to have insights as to what Jesus instituted on that very last supper on that night that he was betrayed. And so he says right from the get-go, your church is a mess. When you guys get together, it's not a good thing. It would be better for you to just stay home, which makes me think, is it possible that churches are meeting today, like right now, already this morning, later on today, and that they're not meeting for the better. A lot of times we might assume, oh, church, that's a good thing. Oh, you're going to church, great, good for you. 
I felt really good after going to church today. But it's possible, at least according to this passage, that some people and some churches, and, and hopefully not ours, that's, that's part of why we need to look at this passage, where when they gather together, it is actually doing more harm than good. It is worse. But why? Why is it for the worse? He says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear the reports that there are divisions among you. And these are the same word that he uses earlier in chapter 1. And this is why I said in 1 Corinthians, probably, it's not too much of a stress to say that one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem that they are facing is divisiveness. Listen to these two passages. This is chapter 1, if you want to turn there, of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you would agree that there would be no divisions among you, same word from our passage, and that you would be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He picks up this again in a chapter over, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. That's the word Paul uses when he's talking about the sinful desires of the heart, the disordered desires that, that lead us like our appetites leading us astray. You're still in that sinful, disordered flesh. And there is jealousy and strife among you, and you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? So two different times before we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he mentions divisions. And so now when we turn back to chapter 11, verse 19, he says, I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. And this is probably one of the weirdest verses in the whole letter. It's, it's on the top 10 list for sure. A lot of Bible teachers and Bible scholars are trying to figure out, uh, Paul, what are you trying to say here? L let me read it again, see if, if it makes sense to you. I believe it in part that you're divided. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine or those who are approved and tested might be recognized. So there's two basic options. You can take this as a positive kind of statement or a negative kind of statement. The first option would be to say, of course there's divisions. There's always going to be divisions in this world. And God uses those divisions and the sin of this world to help Weed out who's real and who's fake. And that's what he's trying to say here. That's one option. Another option, I kind of lean toward this second option, is him kind of sarcastically and in a, in a rebuke way say, of course there's divisions because you guys are following the traditions of the Roman Empire and your meal and your gathering is about honoring the successful and the wealthy members of the church. And so you're trying to see who's really 
in the in crowd. So of course there's divisions. I believe that. You guys are so obsessed and consumed with worldly ways and worldly thinking. And so when you come together, you might be eating. You might be eating an evening meal. Supper is the word that's used here, and it's for the evening meal. It's like we would say dinner. So you're having dinner together. But it's not a dinner that has to do with the Lord. It is not the Lord's dinner. You're having your own meal, your own dinner. And this is not what the Lord's meal looks like. And this is why he reminds us of that night that Jesus was betrayed. And in John's gospel, John gives us a further clear picture of what that night was like. When Jesus instituted this meal, he first decided to get down on his knees and wash the stinky, dirty feet worn by the people that were walking around with basic sandals on in the Middle East. And he gets himself dirty and he says to them, if you want to be great, then you must serve. The greatest at the table are those who serve. In some ways, the fact is that the whole purpose of this meal is that to remember that Jesus Christ is a giver of himself, of everything that he had, his body and his blood, as the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen. So how do you eat the bread and drink the cup and live in such a way that your church is full of selfishness and divisions and discord? What kind of meal are you having if you're saying, we're followers of Jesus, we're just like Jesus, and instead of serving each other, we're serving ourselves. A meal of impatience, not waiting for others to arrive, but yet instead eating ahead of themselves. We're going to see this more next week, Lord willing. But as we unpack the historical situation, it, it seems to suggest that because this is a dinner evening meal, the poorer members of the church community are not able to make it there on time because they're day laborers working in the fields or working more tough labor jobs. And so it's hard for them to get to the meeting on time. And instead of waiting for them, the wealthier elite start eating ahead and devouring all of the food before everyone else can have some. Instead of sharing a common cup of wine and demonstrating the unity and the oneness that there is in Jesus, he says, you guys are getting drunk. And that's when he just like explodes with, what? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? It's one thing for you to do that in your house. But what kind of person are you to do this in someone else's house, to do it in God's house? Do you have no shame? Have you guys learned that lesson? I remember being a young kid, learning that lesson from my mom. She disciplined me quite strictly when I was being given a ride home. And I thought it was really cute and fun to press my face up against the glass window of the car that I was riding in. And I started just making all kinds of you know, sounds, blowing into it and then blowing my breath and then writing all over it. And my siblings were telling me that I should stop, that this was inappropriate behavior and this was someone else's car. And then I just kept doing it because I thought it was fun. And I distinctly remember this kind of lecture from my mom, her sitting me down and saying, it's one thing for you to do that in our car. And that's disgusting, Phil. 
but it's another thing to do that in someone else's car. And this was one of those moments where back in the day, people used to spank. I remember that spanking. I remember. You don't do that in somebody else's house. When you're a guest, there's greater respect that you should have. And he's saying, you are despising the church and the house of God and humiliating those who have nothing. That's verse 22. So don't you all see now, this is all about the haves and the have-nots. This is about the successful and the lower class. And they're coming together for church. At least they're attempting to come together for church, to participate in the Lord's Supper. And Paul is telling them that if they do not change what they are doing, if they don't wait for one another, that they might as well just stay home. Therefore, the main problem is their inability to wait for one another, to be patient, to see that each of them are equals in God's eyes. And as a result, it's created further distinctions of class and divisions, not just in the world, but bringing those divisions into the church. And that's why he concludes in verses 33 and 34. The only way to make sense of the examining yourself and taking the cup in a worthy manner is to understand the problem and then his solution. And his solution in some in verse 33 is when you come together, wait for each other. And if you're really that hungry that you got to devour everybody else's food, then eat at home. It's basic kind of common sense, right? So when you come together, then it won't be for judgment. It will be for a blessing. So do you, do you see the big idea? Do you see that the Lord's Supper is to bring the church together? And it does so by undermining the divisions of the world. And in our text, it's obvious that the main division that is being made is between those who are poor and those who are rich. Thankfully, as far as I'm aware, I have yet to hear somebody complain to me that at Embassy Church, they have felt like they couldn't come to worship or participate in our taking the bread and the cup because they are rich or because they are poor. I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. I'm just saying, as far as I'm aware, our church has been meeting for seven years now. I've yet to hear this, and for that, I rejoice. Let's continue to make that the case. This church is not for the wealthy. This church is not for the poor. This church is for humans who need a savior, wealthy or poor, sick or healthy. Whatever kind of skin color, whatever kind of socioeconomic status you have, whatever kind of family background, whatever kind of spiritual background, if you know yourself in need of forgiveness because you have sinned against God, this church is to be a church for you. And so I think we must apply this to our lives today. And I, th I thought of one specific application that I thought would be really helpful. I mentioned during our announcement welcome time, that as a church family, we meet on Sundays and then we meet throughout the week. And sometimes throughout the midweek meetings, let's say a, a Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Bible study community group, people can start to form more deep and meaningful relationships together. 
And if you heard me right, I said that was kind of the idea. Community groups and the midweek Bible studies are to help us to get to know each other better and the church be more than just a Sunday teaching you heard, but a family that knows each other and loves each other and cares for each other and prays for each other and keeps our covenant with one another, bearing one another's burdens and fighting for the unity and the bond of peace. Every once in a while, somebody has said this, well, I feel like people in community groups are cliquish. And I think that that could be something that we all should just take inventory on. Is that true? I don't know if that's true or not. I'm suggesting that maybe that's one way for us to apply this passage of scripture to our church specifically. Community groups are to form deep and meaningful relationships. Therefore, if when you gather on Sundays, you guys are friendly and close to those people in the community groups and you hang out throughout the week, in some ways we should rejoice, that's good, but not at the expense of failing to see other brothers and sisters. Not at the expense of not welcoming anybody and everybody who's here as a visitor. Not at the expense of not inviting other people to different social events or activities. And I don't mean that to say that every single time you guys have a get together that it has to be people within or without of a specific community group. People are allowed to meet together anytime they want, whenever they want, and encourage each other and have get togethers. And we don't need to get insecure or jealous or think, oh, that must be cliquish. It could be. And if it is, we need to address that immediately. Otherwise, we're almost a church that's a non-church, a Lord's Supper that's a non-Lord's Supper. This is vital. It is the very first thing that we put on our church covenant together. We as a church family, we promise that if there's one thing that we want to start doing together, it is fighting for unity in this church. Unity and peace. That's our first promise that we have made as a church in terms of our membership covenant together. It's the last thing that Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer. I pray, Father, that you would make them one as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Jesus' dying prayer is for the unity of his church. So friends, we need to seriously think about and consider and always be on the radar and be willing to take criticism and critique if at any point we are dividing our church up into any kind of fragments and sections and factions in any way. We need as best as possible to pursue this oneness. And the world today is going to do everything it can to divide us and put us into more camps that we are going to be tempted to bring into the church. Whether it's the rich or poor, where's the Black Lives Matter and the All Lives Matter, whether it's the Donald Trump versus the Joe Biden, whether it's the blue versus the red, whether it's masks save lives. No, masks are just political propaganda. The coronavirus vaccine is needed. We need it. Everybody should take it if you don't, how could you? Versus vaccines are from the devil. This is the world we live in. In the middle of all of this division and discord, I'm praying, I'm preaching, I'm longing for a church like Embassy, who every single week will look to Jesus and not political parties and not government policies and not the ideas and the agendas of this world, but look to Christ alone and proclaim a message that simply says, you are far worse than you ever imagined. We are all at the cross, beggars, empty, broken, bankrupt, 
When we stand at the throne of God, we will all be level. There will not be classes and distinctions. We will all be the same. No matter what you have done, how successful or unsuccessful, we're hungry beggars who need some bread, and we have found it in the bread of life, Jesus Christ. So think. Think with me about the significance of this supper. What kind of people might we become if we make this not a go-through-the-motions practice, not a it gets dull because we do it every week, but just like singing and just like praying and just like preaching, let's do this every week so we can remember the cross of Christ and realize who we are in light of it. Embassy Church has always, from its foundation, valued unity in the midst of diversity. And one of the reasons Christine and I, back when we were living in Washington, D.C., set our eyes on the Chicagoland area was because we wanted to be in an urban, metropolitan, multicultural, diverse community. And our conviction was then, and it is now, that the way for a church to start and to grow and to build into a multicultural, diverse church is not by playing different styles of music, whether that helps or doesn't. It's not by intentionally hiring pastors from different ethnicities or staff members with different skin color, although that may or may not help. It is not fundamentally by talking every week about unity. Our conviction has been that if we set before you the feast that is Jesus Christ and have you feed not on our political agendas or all of our thoughts and ideas about what would make America great, then... This will build the church from every tribe, tongue, and language. If you give people Christ and the gospel, I'm convinced it will bring a different kind of unity that is from the Spirit of God and could not happen by the efforts of men. So therefore, from the beginning, we have tried our best to preach Christ every week in the songs that we sing, in the scriptures that we read, in the sermons that we preach, in the message that we proclaim when we take the bread and the cup by taking the Lord's Supper. And I'm still convinced today as I was then that the degree that we commit ourselves to the unifying message of the body and the blood of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, will be to the degree that we will find unity across all of these world party lines. Can you think of anything right now that our country needs more than a group of people who in the world's eyes would never get along and spend time together? People from different ages, people from different cultures, people with different personalities, people with different political mindsets. Could you think of something more beautiful in the current dilemma that we face as a country than having an expression of a community of people that come together and really take the Lord's Supper seriously. They take the Lord's Supper and they remember the death of Jesus on their behalf as their only hope. They take the Lord's Supper and they come to church with deep sorrows for some. This was the worst week of my life. And the highest of highs for others. This was the best week of my life. And here we are, together, unified. How beautiful 
is it that it is not just about you and your good week or your bad week? Us, we're together. And we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We carry one another's burdens and we celebrate the victories of the cross. Picture of people coming together week in and week out, coming to church, remembering that Jesus Christ has abolished the world's distinctions and there is no more Jew and Greek and slave and free and male or female. Those distinctions do not matter when they stand before the cross. We are all one in Jesus Christ. I want you to picture a people gathering weekend and week out and having one thing in common. We need Jesus. We need forgiveness because we're sinners. We need saving because we're in danger. In some ways, this is the most inclusive, unifying message ever. In other ways, that inclusiveness is divisive. It's an irony, isn't it? All you need to come to the table is to feel your need of him. But not a lot of people have that. I've said this quote many times from Tim Keller, former pastor in New York City, and he would say, all you really need is nothing. Sadly, a lot of people don't have that. They come to church with their resumes, with their hands full. God, look what I did. Look what I have. Look at all that I've achieved. All that you need is nothing. That is the dividing line. And that, my friends, is why it's the most inclusive, loving message that has ever been proclaimed and will be proclaimed. We are a church of saying, if you want to participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper and full meaning fellowship in a community that comes from heaven and not just from the divisions of this world, then all that you need is nothing. But if you come to God with something, you are excluded. This isn't for you. The bread and the cup are not for you to participate. Examine yourself. Take it in a worthy manner. This is for believers in Christ, for those who are changed and transformed by the good news of the gospel. So when we take the Lord's Supper week in and week out, let's be a group of people that believe we probably collectively don't know how to solve all the world's problems, let alone our nation's problems. But there's one thing that we can and we should do. It is to display the gospel, the beautiful diamond the church is the prongs that uphold the beauty of the glorious, sparkling diamond. The diamond that is unity and love. Let's take the Lord's Supper knowing that the only reason we can be unified is because he was divided. What does our passage say? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks he, he broke it because the breaking of the bread would be a symbol of the breaking of his body and his flesh that would get torn to shreds just hours later. So let us never forget that the only reason we can be united is because he was divided. The only reason we can come together and be one is because Jesus Christ was separated from the Father, the Father turning his face away from the sin that 
absorbed Jesus on the cross. The only reason we can be welcomed to the feast is because Jesus was sent outside of the camp so that you and I could be included inside the house of God. Friends, look to the cross today. Realize your bankruptcy and feast on Christ. Let's take the Lord's Supper in that manner. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now again in the name of Jesus the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and we pray that your spirit will give us unity. Your spirit would fill us with peace. We pray that you will vanquish and rid of all distinctions and divisions that would make us separated. Lord, help us to be a people that can enjoy and appreciate our different ethnicities, our different genders, our different backgrounds, to learn and listen from one another, to humble ourselves, to be like Jesus, and fall down on our knees and wash one another's feet. Lord, I pray that that's the, the thing that our church would be marked by, known for, and faithfully displaying. And we ask that it wouldn't just be for embassy. We ask, Lord, that this would multiply at Gospel Grace Church in Woodstock. It would multiply around the nation and the globe with the missions work that we're supporting as a church. God, we want to pray for your favor to be upon your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.